From Relay FM, this is Flashback. This season, we're looking at the rise and fall of IBM's personal computer business. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Quinn Nelson. Hi, Stephen. The whole season, all about IBM, baby. That's right. Last time, we spoke about the hardware development of the IBM PC. It was fast and cheap, and they used a bunch of off-the-shelf parts, which was a genius move. Yep. But, uh, you know, a computer is basically just a lump of plastic and metal without an operating system. And that's where we're going to go today, right? Mm, That's right. That's right. This is a very famous story. You've almost certainly heard it before. But the way that it has been dramatized in film and, you know, literature and the various articles that's been read about, you know, we've all heard this story. But um, there's a little more nuance to it than it's often portrayed. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. We do know how the story ends. Um, There's a triumphant Bill Gates. Yeah. But how things get there are pretty crazy. So... We need to roll back the clock to the year, well, to the late 1970s, huh? There you go. Yeah. No one in the late 70s knew exactly what year it was anyway, so. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So in the 70s, really the OS of choice Mm -hmm. for 8-bit computers, if you didn't go with something custom, was CPM, written by Gary Kildall of Digital Research Incorporated, or DRI. Mm -hmm. Like I said, it's about as close as you can get to a de facto operating system. It wasn't like what you think of today. So a bunch of different machines may use CPM, but they may not share disk formats. So you may not be able to like share documents or applications between different CPM computers. It was very much the Wild West. Yeah. And and kind of heading digital research was Gary Kildall. He was the one that wrote CPM. And he's someone that might be familiar to you. If you've ever, well, if you're old and or if you've ever gone onto YouTube and looked up old videos from the Computer Chronicles, a television show. Um, He was a co-host of that program from 1983 to 1990. And we all know that the main guy, and I forget his name. You know it. Stuart Chaffee. But I went and looked up Gary Kildall, and I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, he's totally on there. He's got a nice beard and everything. And while he's known by far fewer people than someone like Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, his work shaped the early days of the personal computer in some pretty massive ways. Kildall and Gates, they were actually pretty close allies in the late 1970s and early 1980s. In fact, uh, Microsoft had even partnered with DRI and a Seattle hardware company, which we'll talk about a little later, Mm -hmm. to make a card for the Apple II. See how everything's just all mixed together? Um, It is. Yeah, it definitely is. This card had a Z80 processor and thus unlocked CPM. And the OS uh, that Kilda had written, CPM, was allowed to run for Apple II users via this card, which is pretty cool. It's like a whole entire computer on your computer. Um, and there are pretty early reports that the two CEOs, Gates and Kildall, had even discussed merging their companies on more than one occasion. So IBM goes to Microsoft. Okay. Well-known software company about maybe partnering up on the IBM PC. But Mm. this relationship between Gates and Kildoff throws a little bit of a spanner in the works, as Mike Hurley might say. Mm. A spanner. A spanner. And Gates basically immediately calls Kildoff and is like, hey, 
IBM's looking for an OS. I've set a meeting up for you with them. Gates is acting as a conduit between IBM and DRI. Hmm. Basically, the day after IBM had come knocking on Microsoft's door about licensing a, a DOS or a disk operating system from them. And um, this is when things get get weird. So you need to understand a, a technical hurdle here. CPM was not ready to go out of the box for this Intel processor that IBM had chosen. Right. Uh, it also didn't run on the 6502 that was in the... Apple II line, uh, so that card that you mentioned mm-hmm. had a, a Z80 processor on it. That's really what CPM ran on. Right. And so DRI was going to have to port CPM to run on the the new IBM PC. Right. And that's really why IBM wanted to talk to Gates first, because they they knew that Kildall's OS wasn't actually available to them because of this architectural issue. But then we get to the meeting itself where, okay, IBM's going to go uh, go up and talk to Gary Kildall at DRI's headquarters, and uh, things get weird. That's right. So IBM's software manager, I think it was head of software development, Jack Sams, and we're going to talk about him a lot throughout this episode. Um, he went to meet with Kildall at the headquarters, as you stated, but, uh, well, Kildall wasn't there because it's reported that he had decided to go fly his private plane instead. It was a beautiful day <laughs> on the West Coast. So instead, Gary's wife and business manager, Dorothy, took the meeting instead. And when IBM laid an NDI on the table, after a number of hours of deliberation, um, the, the NDA was signed with the company attorney. And uh, Sam's basically ends up leaving DRA empty-handed. Maybe that's what happened. Because there are other reports that say that Dorothy Kildall did not sign the NDA at all. Uh, others say that she did sign it, but not after meeting with the company attorney, but after her, uh, Gary had returned. Uh, it's all a bit murky. And I think in the time frame, late 1970s, you know, this is, this is actually taking place in 1980 now. I think there's more than a little bit of, like, sexism in some of the ways this story has been repeated. Oh, you think? Oh, he left his <laughs> wife and like she was his business partner partner and ran the company's financials. Like she knew what she was doing. No, she was not dumb. But Sam's and I think others didn't really see that or didn't uh, didn't respect that necessarily. And so you get this really messy story about did she sign the NDA at all? Uh, did she ever actually have the meeting or did they basically just leave IBM like, you know, out on the front porch while they deliberated inside. It's all very murky. So, yeah, in Kildall's defense, as you kind of stated, is later on the Computer Chronicles, there was a special. And then also, uh, you know, he himself had stated that he had just merely been flying back from a business trip. That The truth of what happened that day is probably lost in time. And even Jack Sams's recollection of the event has differed over the years. So yeah. who's to really know? But whatever the case is, things between IBM and DRI, they were not off to a great start. And Mm -mm. this made IBM even more inclined to do a deal with Microsoft. Um, You'll see that Gates is kind of this um, diseased intermediary in almost everything (laughs) involving this entire story. And uh, long story short, they pay Gates to find an alternative to CPM that the IBM PC can run. But before we get to that, I want to kind of talk about uh, IBM's 
kind of relationship with Microsoft because Jack Sams of IBM was not entirely new to dealing with Microsoft. He had actually previously pushed for IBM to make a deal with Microsoft in the years prior uh, to buy BASIC for the Data Master which we talked about um, a couple episodes ago. And that was a task that IBM instead decided to take in-house. Um, also, as we discussed in the prior episode, which ended up- It took like a year. Yeah, ended up not <laughs> really being a very good idea, right? And, and so at first, Microsoft's involvement with the PC was expected to be fairly little. Um, Microsoft and Gates were uh, really pretty much unsurprised that IBM wanted to enter the PC market. Everyone knew this, right? Because IBM was dying to get into the kind of consumer and, and smaller business industry from the mainframe market. But what was kind of surprising was that IBM was hoping to build a machine that could work agnostically with a bunch of uh, different software as well as hardware. Um, that it would work with both a ROM-hosted basic environment, which was similar to computers like the uh, you know Apple II and Commodore PET and uh, Radio Shack Trash 80, um, you know, consumer-level machines, or that it could boot into, as we've mentioned, the more kind of uh, hugely professional uh, and hugely popular uh, disk-oriented CPM OS. So uh, Microsoft is not new to working with IBM. And, and like other manufacturers before them, IBM was anticipating coming to Microsoft to source their widely used basic. I mean, I mean, pretty much everyone had done it, right? But mm -hmm. the relationship gets more complicated over time. Sam asks Gates, who at the time um, had become an official consultant to IBM, if he could find, as we mentioned, an alternative to digital's uh, 8088 CPM. They hire the guy who they've worked with before, but who also has a relationship with the other guy. <laughs> and he's tasked with finding an OS to replace his or to use instead of his. A little awkward. And so, yeah, we, we mentioned earlier Seattle Computer Products, and this is where they come back into the story. In 1979, they released an Intel 8086 motherboard for hobbyists, mm -hmm. came, and it became quite popular. But as we discussed... Uh, CPM only ran on the Z80, and then at this point, the Intel 8080. And right. so people wanted CPM, but they couldn't get it on the on the 8086. So basically, uh, Seattle Computer Products, SCP, they're in the same boat IBM would be in a year later, saying, we have all this demand for CPM, but it's not compatible with the hardware that we've chosen. Right. And... Um, and the, and the 8088 that IBM intended to use was the same architecture as the 8086, right? So literally exactly the same problem. <laughs> exactly the same problem. And so Tim Patterson of SCP, um, he decided to write his own operating system. He dubbed it QDOS for Quick and Dirty Operating System. Hmm. And to say it's inspired by CPM <laughs> is... <laughs> Putting it extremely generously. We'll get to that a bit later on. Basically, every <laughs> everyone who wasn't SCP or Microsoft would say that QDOS is uh, a ripoff of CPM itself. And we'll talk about the legality of that in a second. But now we get back to Microsoft, right? Bill Gates, he's just sitting around wondering how the heck he's going to whip up an OS in the time frame that IBM wants. 
And then this miracle kind of falls right into Gates's lap. And it's it's actually Patterson <laughs> that calls Microsoft's co-founder, Paul Allen, about QDOS to see if Microsoft would be interested in writing some software for it. Uh, yeah, Microsoft has no interest in this. They want QDOS. <laughs> um, now, this next part has been pretty over-embellished in, in the movies and in media. So let me tell you how it, it actually happened. Gates recognizing that this was the solution to IBM's problems, actually calls up Sam's of IBM. He calls IBM and says, hey, do you guys want to get QDOS or do you want me to? And Sam's tells Gates, by all means, you get it. That's literally word for word what Mm -hmm. he says. And and basically, the reason why is that Sam's had already thrown a lot of the system software problems at Microsoft. And he he wasn't really about to change course. Uh, Microsoft was doing a good job. They wanted to get to market quickly, right? And years later, he would end up saying in an interview, quote, we wanted this to be Microsoft's problem, end quote. And, And what Sam's and IBM didn't know is that this decision was going to cost them billions and billions of dollars over the next several decades. And now we get to the famous scene where these Microsoft kids, you know, get to go down to the official IBM board meeting. They were the ones that purchased QDOS. And then they make their proposal wherein Microsoft says, hey, you know, we'll take responsibility for providing an OS and for supporting um, the four programming languages, uh, BASIC, Fortran, uh, Pascal, and COBOL. And we'll prepare a range of software to be ready at launch for your IBM PC. But in exchange, you're going to need to pay us a license fee. And you can't just buy everything outright. This is going to be on a per copy basis. And at the time, IBM kind of felt that there was enough to go around for everyone. And frankly, I think they were motivated by the idea that Microsoft was almost directly tied to the success of the IBM PC, right? It wouldn't Mm -hmm. hurt if their main software partner, if their failure or success was determined um, by, by how well this product did. I just don't think they anticipated how well it was going to do and what this was going to mean for IBM in the long run, right? It's all so interesting, right? You can clearly see how this happened, right? You have uh, you have Patterson at SCP copy CPM, but in a way that it runs on this new 8086. Mm-hmm. You have uh, Microsoft and Bill Gates looking for something that was like CPM that would run on the 86. Yep. And it falls into his lap. And on the other side of the table, you can see IBM, their whole methodology of creating this computer was outsourcing as much as possible to do it as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. They've been burned just a few years before by trying to uh, write all their system software on their own. And so you can see how it lines up. And and Gates at the center of is like, okay, you know, we have this opportunity. We're going to make money from licensing. I mean, I understand why it gets like played up in movies, mm-hmm. but it is pretty brilliant on his part. I mean, it is legality of maybe QDOS aside. Well, and and the other thing that I, I provide this kind of story because I think it illustrates how cunning Microsoft was. I mean, they were cutthroat. Um, when Sam's first met Bill Gates, this was, you know, two years prior in 1979, he goes into the office, sees Bill Gates, and based on how young, and, and Gates is young at the time, but even furthermore, based on how young Gates looks and his posture and his voice and his kind of demeanor, uh, Sam's actually mistakes Bill Gates for just an office boy that works at Microsoft at the time. Um, and so I think that, 
not that Microsoft played dumb, but that Gates and Balmer and um, the rest of Microsoft were really able to kind of slip under the radar a little bit and and not show their cards as as far more calculated and far more competent that I think anyone really expected them to be from a from a business savvy. They they knew Gates was smart technically, but yeah, pretty crazy. It's wild. Mm-hmm. So we're going to fast forward a little bit. Okay. IBM and Microsoft are now hand in hand getting ready to launch the PC. Right. And by this point, Gary Kildall had been shown a copy of what was now called 86 DOS, but it's QDOS, right? Was QDOS written by the guy in Seattle. Right. Right. He basically like has a flip the table moment. Uh, fairly understandably, right? <laughs> understandably. He yeah. alleges that Tim Patterson has developed this DOS by ripping off CPM. He even goes to say that he stole the source code directly, which is pretty which is pretty crazy. And there's not much evidence of that. Really, how would he, he gotten it, frankly? Yeah, uh, right. I mean, you'd have to have like physical access in those days, right? right? And stuff was under such lock and key back then because that was kind of your protection, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not like syncing your source code to GitHub. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> a little bit different world. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, I th- I think what's likely, uh, just in my reading a bunch of this stuff over the last couple of weeks, mm-hmm. is that he basically backwards engineered a bunch of the APIs. Yeah. And so we ended up more or less in the same place doing things the same way that DRI had, but, you know, by looking at their at their homework. Yeah. No, he, I mean, he directly admits, in fact, that he used the CPM reference manual to pretty much duplicate every single API. <laughs> Yeah. Which, hello. (laughs) There you go. You know, we can debate if it's moral or ethical. In hindsight, though, Patterson was in the clear, as courts had and have since, ruled that APIs can't be copyrighted, merely specific implementations of software written against them. Yeah. Now, now, patents are another issue, right? But that gets, like, super complicated. And so IBM just basically doesn't want any issues, right? IBM doesn't want to, I mean, I kind of view like IBM as being like the teacher and you have SCP, Microsoft and DRI like (laughs) fighting in the playground. (laughs) That's right. IBM doesn't want to go down to their level. No. And so IBM once again dispatched Bill Gates to go to talk to DRI, Mm -hmm. to go calm him down. Uh, That doesn't work. No, that's weird. As you may imagine. Yeah. (laughs) And then IBM steps in with a solution. They tell Kildall, if you can deliver a compatible version of CPM, then we will offer it to customers with our PC. Okay. That seems to pacify DRI. They go off, and the next year they deliver uh, a version of CPM that works. They have that ready in early 1982. And this meant that PC users had four options when it came to an OS. So you had DOS, you know, uh, QDOS slash 86 DOS slash MS DOS, all really kind of the same <laughs> right, thing. Right. Uh, you have CPM. Okay. You have a version of, uh, of a Pascal environment from UCSD. Okay. And then in the ROM itself, there was a very simple, basic environment. Okay. And, uh, well, one of those was popular. Can you guess which? <laughs> which one? <laughs> yeah. Well, because. 
basic was free, right? And as you mentioned, their implementation of basic was pretty limited. I, users wanted more, okay? MS-DOS was really only sold for an additional $40, which was quite inexpensive. The Pascal environment cost a whopping $500, which was, yeah, one-third oh. <laughs> the price of an entry-level machine. And then when CPM showed up, IBM charged $240 a copy versus Microsoft's $40. So the price and Microsoft's head start, it just, it, it doomed Kildall's efforts. Um, IBM claimed that its higher price point was due to DRI's excessive licensing fees, but really at the end of the day, all customers saw was an OS that had been around for years at six times the price of the new hotness. And really at the end of the day, it probably benefited consumers because not only was, was Microsoft's DOS easily supported um, by previous CPM titles because, again, um, porting them was very simple. Yeah, because they were very similar under the hood. Because it was basically the same. Go figure. <laughs> um, but Patterson and subsequently Microsoft had made a number of quality of life improvements, most notably in, in disk and file handling. So even though it was kind of a pretty much a knockoff, it was even better for less money. And it had been on the market for, you know, 18 months by the time that um, that uh, Kildall was able to get it shipped into the IBM PC. So it was just too late. Too late and, and with a product that was... Inferior for more money. Inferior and old. You know, CPM really had come from the previous decade. Right. Da MS-DOS ended up being the winner. Mm-hmm. We should talk about the the PC okay. uh, a little bit and sort of its launch. All right. It was huge. It was a huge hit. Oh, they sold they sold a couple. Uh, they sold about thirteen and a half thousand units Ooh. in the last three months of nineteen eighty one, which was that's pretty good. Uh, that's a lot. Yeah, that's nineteen eighty one. Yeah, and numbers only took off from there. The praise was given to the build quality of the machine. Um, the keyboard in particular was fantastic. Everyone that knows IBM keyboards knows this to be the case. Uh, and then IBM also, you know, was was lauded for their decision to use open specifications and to encourage third-party software and hardware development. It was kind of the anti-IBM's IBM. Yeah. <laughs> and so it, it, that understandably kind of caught people's attention. Yeah, I could see being in this era and like everything you know about IBM from the mainframe business we spoke about a few episodes ago where they control everything. Right. Now they have this PC and they've chosen to go the opposite direction. Like that had to have turned heads in the industry. And uh, I mean, they succeeded. Two years after the release of the machine, uh, Byte Magazine concluded that for those reasons that we talked about, the PC had been successful. And they, and they say, quote, in retrospect, it seems IBM stepped into a void that remained, paradoxically, at the center of a crowded market. <laughs> and, which, you know, it seems that there wasn't room and they came in and turns out there was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so much so that when Apple ended up um, making its famous Macintosh ad in 1984, like IBM was the bad guy in the home PC market. Right. Yeah. And that's after, you know, what, three years of making consumer hardware? Mm -hmm. Pretty amazing. So let's talk about the winners and losers in this scenario, right? In the wake of IBM success, there are definitely going to be several bodies, several losers. Um, one of them, uh, maybe perhaps surprisingly, but not so surprisingly, is Seattle Computer Products, the, the company that developed, you know, the, the 
knockoff software um, that was purchased by Microsoft. And so they kind of just slowly faded away and they went out of business in 1985. Um, its owner, Rod Brock, had attempted to sell his license to 86DOS, but Microsoft just basically buried him in legal paperwork. <laughs> yeah, basically strangled the company. And then Gary Kildall, he never really recovered for the entire thing. Um, almost overnight, DRI had gone from the head of the operating system game to losing to, to Bill Gates, this kid. And all the while, uh, Kildall maintained that Seattle Computer Products had, had ripped him off. A few years later, he'd sell DRI to Novell, becoming a millionaire. And, uh, well, he unfortunately died a number of years later uh, due to injury sustained in a bar in 1994. Um, it's unclear if he had fallen or had been in a fight, but either way, it's, it's kind of a heartbreaking tale. And after this whole saga, he never really re recovered. Yeah, I think selling DRI was not out of a position of strength, I would imagine. No. The no. winner, other than IBM, which was raking in money from selling PCs, uh, of course, is Microsoft. Yeah. It had taken a somewhat questionable clone of someone else's OS, mm -hmm. rebranded it, then licensed it to the biggest company in the industry in a deal worth millions. Mm -hmm. And within just a year, so fast forward from this, about a year, they were licensing it to over 70 other computer manufacturers. And we'll, we will talk more about this when we get to a future episode on PC clones. Mm -hmm. But needless to say, it made Gates and the company wealthy beyond belief. Yeah. And, and, and IBM's still around. Make no mistake. But there's only one winner in this story, and it's, it's Gates. <laughs> Sneaky little guy. Seems like it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you want to read more about these stories, uh, head on over to our show notes at relay.fm slash flashback slash 23. Uh, there you can uh, read more about the IBM PC and its myriad of operating systems. All right. <laughs> so many. Yeah. What a world 1981 was. Mm -hmm. Quid, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on social media at snazzyq and at youtube.com slash snazzy. And Steven... Where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter as ISMH, and I write at 512pixels.net. And I host a couple of other shows here on Relay, including Connected and Mac Power Users. They're both very good. Please do listen if you don't already. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, well, Quinn, we will be back in a couple of weeks talking about later models of the IBM PC. I'm excited. So until then, say goodbye. All righty. We'll see you later. Bye, y'all.